0: On this episode, Patrick McLaughlin, a senior research fellow and director of policy analytics here at Mercatus, chats about the latest economic situation report with Dr. Bruce Yandel, who is a distinguished adjunct fellow here at Mercatus. They discuss inflation and unemployment, the misery index, what to expect from the Fed, and much more. If you would like to connect with a scholar featured on this episode, please email the Mercatus Outreach team at mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu.
1: Thank you, Bruce, for joining me today. Actually, I should say thank you for letting me join you. This is my first time on this podcast. I have enjoyed listening in the past and reading your reports, but now it's up to me to hopefully hold up my end of the conversation. It should be a pretty easy task from my perspective. Thanks again, Bruce. How are you?
0: Good. And it's wonderful being in conversation with you again after many years, Patrick. So you're right. There's plenty to talk about. We have I think it's safe to say an unusual economic situation that we're trying to understand. Uh, that makes life interesting for economists. That's supposed to be our stock in trade, but uh, sometimes we may feel ourselves supremely challenged when we look at data. But plenty going on. Where do you think we should start, Patrick?
1: Well, you mentioned data. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into some numbers. You open your report discussing real GDP growth. You have some numbers there and it's looking from, uh, from some points of view, like we're maybe entering a recessionary period. you mentioned two quarters of negative growth. And of course, everyone knows about inflation running high for several quarters now. So inflation plus negative growth, is it the 1970s all over again, Bruce?
0: Not quite but there are pieces of it that certainly look familiar. We do have those two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, and and in many cases, a rule of thumb says that defines a recession, but it doesn't really. The National Bureau of Economic Research is the official keeper of the recession recipes, and they have a dating committee that after time has passed and data is in hand, they look to see What the economy looks like. And there's more to the story than negative growth, though that's an important piece. But the fact that we have negative growth in real GDP two consecutive quarters and are likely to have an all close to zero growth year when the final tally is made overlooks an important part of the economy that makes it, in a a sense, a better economy for everyone, but a very challenging one to understand. And that is we have a very strong labor market, high growth in employment, low unemployment. And now if we hark back to the 1970s, and we looked at data in the 1970s, we would see, yes, negative growth in real GDP, but no, not a low unemployment rate, but a high unemployment rate. And it was during that decade, as, as you know, Patrick, that the term stagflation entered the vocabulary, and we had stagflation from the Richard Nixon administration forward for about three administrations. That is a combination of high inflation and high unemployment. We don't have that now, which presents a challenge, and it's a better economy to be alive and working in than any of those back in that period.
1: Yeah, the term stagflation I've always found intriguing because if the inflation part of that word is is obvious, yeah, but the stagnation part of that word is that referring to stagnant economic growth overall, or is it maybe stagnant wage growth, stagnant employment growth? Is it all of the above?
0: I think it is a bit all of the above, but I think the focus historically, that is in the historic context. The focus was on employment. Mm -hmm. And probably that's the right focus in terms of what's important to most of us ordinary people. Sure, we worry about inflation. I do the grocery shopping in my household and enjoy it, but I'm not enjoying it as much as I used to as I watch those prices creep up. Everyone is hit hard by the price of gasoline at the pump, and we're pleased to see a sharp reduction in that number. But having a job, is probably the fundamental part of the beginning of happiness for most people who are work age.
1: Right. Are there any sectors of the economy where having a job is less likely, even in this tight labor market? For example, I've seen some headlines discussing major layoffs at tech companies and maybe, if I recall correctly, some, some of the major investment banks as well. So I don't expect the labor markets uniformly tight everywhere. Is there any particular place where people should be more worried than others?
0: Well, you touched on one, and that is the finance community. That's where we are seeing some weak growth or negative in some states and regions. Construction employment is down. It was weakening before we had the run-up in interest rates that have been occurring now since the first of the year. The construction economy, I would say, should be hit hard. By that I mean It's interest rate sensitive, and we are seeing those interest rate numbers rise rather significantly. So construction, finance, probably that part of finance that's tied into construction lending is the sensitive part. Uh, But manufacturing, uh, some weakness there, but overall still has its nose above water, so to speak, as a growing sector. But uh, it is uneven, just as you point out. Probably the most troublesome sector of all is troublesome area of all is in services. We all see it everywhere we go. Now hiring, please apply. And some wonderful innovations have occurred in conjunction with this tightness, Patrick, that are fascinating to me. There's a software company that has come out that is now providing the capability primarily to fast food franchise holders, to pay their workers by the hour with an entry to their debit cards constantly. So it's not a matter of waiting until payday. Payday is every hour. I guess that makes it tough if somebody says, well, I'm out of here at the end of the hour, and probably that is happening. But we do have innovations that are helping to conserve cash to make this employment market perhaps work a little faster and better than it would otherwise.
1: That's an interesting point. Traditionally, you see during recession recessionary periods, companies will trim the fat, so to speak. They'll, they'll take the opportunity to examine which workers are perhaps not as productive as their wage might warrant when it comes to looking at the bottom line and become more efficient in a lot of senses. But here, it's not strictly speaking because of a recessionary period that you're seeing these innovations, it's more of this labor shortage that's causing the innovations. And so the innovations are more about how can we get more out of the existing number of workers, not how can we cut back on the workers that we have. That's right.
0: And you know, another aspect of inflation that that makes it easier if you are a manager in a sense, the most painful thing that most managers have to deal with is cutting the pay of an employee or worker because of poor performance on the job. You just put that off as long as you can. But when you have inflation, it's then it's a matter of will I give an increase in pay equal to the rate of inflation or will I just leave this person's pay level alone? That's far less painful. So in a sense, inflation can bring a little dose of efficiency, as you're pointing out, another little dose of efficiency in terms of managing a workforce.
1: In your report, Bruce, you talk about the economy as a, a simple circular flow. I wonder if you can talk about that analogy at all and then tie it back to inflation and how that fits into this model.
0: I was trying to find a way, I guess all of us, Patrick, you and I and others who have the good fortune to spend some time in the classroom, trying to find ways to explain things to ourselves first so that we might be able to explain a concept or an issue to the students who are around us. And it occurred to me that that simplest of all processes or diagrams that we hear about, sometimes the first week or second week in that very first principles of economics course would be helpful. And it's called the circular flow diagram. It carries a lot of common sense content. The content says that all assets, all productive assets, everything is owned by people. And you can say it's all owned by households. And so, in a sense, the households really own the places where they go to work. Some of the households own the capital, the machinery, the land, the building. And so, people get up and go to work every day, and what they produce has to be the basis for what they can get paid. And so, in that circular flow, one of the flows has to do with the inputs that are going to work every day and showing up. The backflow from that is a flow of income which is constituted by what they produce. And so if everything were real and we were paid with the real stuff, then what we got paid would enable us to buy what we produce. And so the circular flow hums and everything is kind of hunkadory in a barter economy sense. When we begin to introduce money, a means of exchange, it gets a little more complicated, of course. It gets even more complicated when we introduce a money printer who can change the amount of money that is enabling the circular flow. As long as the amount of money is keeping up with the circular flow, then we can get paid with pieces of paper and buy what we produce, and that's the end of that. But if that amount of money being pumped into the pipes begins to increase, we've got more pieces of paper, and now we have inflation, or the prospects for it. And so that producer of money paper can hit the brakes and slow us all down or can hit the accelerator and make us think that we are earning more, even though it just may be paper dollars. And so taking that circular flow idea and now putting it into the context of the current situation we are attempting to comprehend and now folding in COVID, mandated shutdowns, an economy that is sort of hit in the head. For public policy reasons, nobody's going to work every day. Well, are they still getting paid? Well, as a matter of fact, they're getting paid well. Uh, the fella in charge of the printing press keeps sending out lots of money, more money than the average person had seen before. And so now we get a build-up of purchasing power, but no place to spend it. And now we open the economy and we rush out with our purchasing power, and I think quite understandably we got lots of pieces of paper changing a diminished quantity of goods, and we see high prices rising. We see inflation in every direction. And I guess then the question becomes, will the fellow with the printing press slow down, or will he hit the accelerator again without us being able to predict? When I look at the amount of money flowing into the economy, I look at something called M2. It's one of the Fed's measures of money in the economy, bank deposits, currency, near monies like money market accounts. M2, the growth of M2 exploded right as the Biden administration was coming into office. It had been rising rapidly. By exploded, I mean better than a 20% annual rate of increase, where typically it's 6 And so we get this huge explosion of money. When the Biden administration introduces their first big payout, that's when we get the peak of that explosion. When you look at the data now, it's decelerating rapidly. In fact, the most recent measure of growth of M2 is about where it was before COVID started. We're looking at numbers, again, like 6%. Now, there's about a one-year lag between What happens to that money supply and what happens to inflation and economic activity? And so the data we're looking at right now says yes, the guy who prints money has hit the brakes. And so we should expect to see deceleration in inflation so that about a year from now, about the end of 2023, we will see normal, let's call it that, normal kinds of inflation, but a slow economy.
1: So the guy that prints money is really multiple people, right? We think about Jerome Powell, who chairs the, the Fed, of course, but I'm not certain that we can lay all of this at his feet, nor can we expect him to entirely deal with the consequences of the printing of money and the growth of M2. Or, or am I wrong? Is this something that the Fed entirely created and can entirely deal with or, or the other players here?
0: I think your sense of the situation is right on. Uh, the Fed has a money creating group called the Federal Open Market Committee. They don't call it the money creating group. I just did. But its formal name is the Federal Open Market Committee. They meet regularly. It's that committee that we hear about meeting when someone says, will the Fed raise interest rates at their next meeting? The meeting they're speaking of is the Federal Open Market Committee. It's called open market because the Fed engages in market transactions in the open market where they buy and sell bonds, existing bonds. And so if they buy bonds to put the bonds in their portfolio, in a sense, the bonds are out of the economy now. And when they bought, they put money in the economy in place of the bonds. And so M2 goes up. Or they can decide to sell bonds. They may have built up a huge portfolio of bonds, as they did with COVID. And now they are letting those bonds run off. Instead of buying more to replace maturing bonds, they let the bonds mature, they go off, that then tightens the amount of money in the economy. And I think that's the main thing we're seeing right now. But there's another piece to it that, in a sense, perhaps requires the Fed to sort of look the other way. And that is when the United States Treasury decides to move money into the economy but economy by introducing more money through their bond transactions and then using that money to make major purchases or disbursements. And so you're right. But it still seems the Fed always gets to be the only game in town, and perhaps that's politics. For the, from the standpoint of the politicians who may have been very instrumental in actions that led to an increase in debt and an increase in spending, they can honestly point the finger at the Fed and say, it's really those guys that are responsible for inflation. The Federal Open Market Committee, the members of the Federal Reserve Board are in that unhappy seat, perhaps, of being responsible for price stability and having everyone focus on them because ultimately, that's the way our system is built. They become the focal point.
1: So you mentioned the actions of the Department of the Treasury. Is that at the behest of of Congress or of the president? I I will note that much of the stimulus, for example, during COVID did come from congressional actions, not only from, you know, it wasn't just Jerome Powell or Janet Yellen or or even President Trump or President Biden taking actions. Congress was part of all this.
0: That's right. If we go back a bit, if we go back to the Great Recession, the 2006, 2007, 2008 period, uh, when our economy is almost experiencing a financial panic, the Chairman of the Fed, the Secretary of Treasury walk, not arm in arm, not hand in hand, but walk together into congressional hearings. And we have developed, what could be called an accord, or maybe we'd call it a discord, but we have an agreement between the legislative branch and treasury and fed to act together in order to counter that great recession. And so they get something that becomes called quantitative easing, quantitative easing, is cooperation between the Treasury and the Fed at the behest of the legislative branch to get some more money out there in the economy. Uh, And so we have the results of quantitative easing. Now with a piling on of COVID medicine, uh, financial medicine, a huge buildup in that Fed portfolio that I mentioned earlier And now a runoff from that portfolio, which is reducing the growth rate of money in the economy. But we're talking about numbers, uh, Patrick, that we in economics have never seen before. That is the magnitudes. The magnitudes of excess reserves in our economy have never been seen in the history of the data. The size of the Fed's portfolio is larger than anything we've seen. In our lifetimes, and so it is an unprecedented period that we're in right now, which gets back, if we get back to that earlier discussion about are we in a recession, I sort of think old definitions of recessions and perhaps old ways of measuring just won 't quite do the job for the economy that we're in right now.
1: Well you mentioned another way of measuring the economy actually in your report uh, the the misery index. So maybe this is a good chance to talk about that. I think this index is worth thinking about because it does highlight the tough choice put in front of the Fed right now, where the uh, the uh options are both pretty bad. You can either continue allowing inflation or encouraging it even, or you can try to fight that at the cost of other factors in the economy, growth, maybe employment even. And putting those together into a single metric, a single index, is uh it's been done. You want to talk about the misery index a little bit?
0: Sure. The misery index is, a, I think, is a very helpful metric, and it's simple. Uh, it has a lot of things to recommend it. Uh, if anyone ever gives you the definition, uh, most likely you'll remember it. It just says: add together two numbers, add the unemployment rate to the inflation rate, and ergo, you've got the current misery index and if we do that today we know that we're looking at an inflation component uh, if we use the consumer price index is bouncing around pretty close to nine percent and we know that the unemployment rate is 3.6 and so now we've got 12.6 as a misery index and if we were to look at the at data for misery indices going on back a year or so, we would see this one's pretty high. But the interesting thing, Patrick, is, as you know, if we were to look further back, we would see much higher misery indices. If we go back to Jimmy Carter's administration, we would see a misery index breaking 21%. If we go on back to Nixon, we see something in the 18s, Ford, it was in the 19s, big numbers and Arthur Oaken, the economist who invented the misery index, was there on the scene and I guess got inspired to say that let's find a simple way to follow this thing. Typically, I just mapped out the data earlier this morning, uh, mapping the misery index into the unemployment rate using Fed data, going back to 2002 and coming forward. And darn it, when you look at the mapping of the data, you this current period is the only period where you see systematically rising misery index with falling unemployment rate. And that is the peculiar characteristic of our economy now. And, and so back to the trade-off problem, the Fed theoretically knows how to get inflation down raise interest rates high enough kick this economy in the head hard enough and eventually it will slow down but when it what does slow down mean slow down means layoffs that is for the economy to literally slow down so that that circular flow is no longer producing the goods that are being chased by those dollars it means layoff and and so for the typical person and i mentioned this in the review The typical one of us, ordinary human beings, says, if I have a choice as between losing my job and seeing less inflation, the choice is easy. I'll keep working. Uh, I'll figure out a way to live with these high price levels, but I can't even figure that out if I'm not employed. So it is the sensitive variable. And, And you're right. As the old saying, the buck stops at the Fed. Now, all the eyes are on them. And Again, quotation marks, they are viewed as the only game in town. And this is the ugly trade-off that they have to face as they try to get that inflation rate down.
1: An interesting thing about inflation compared to unemployment is the relative uniformity of inflation in the sense that it affects everyone. Now, of course, you can have more inflation in some is for some goods such as gasoline and so those who use more gasoline will will indeed feel it more but it does seem to me like inflation as a burden as a tax so to speak is more broadly dispersed across the entire population than unemployment often is where you see certain sectors more as we already discussed more mm-hmm. affected than than others and so, As as the Fed moves forward to try to to slow things down with the levers that it has, would you predict that the effects of that are going to become less uniform than they have been? Let's let's talk in the misery index terms. Will the misery index fall in a in a less uniform manner with lower inflation and higher unemployment than it has in the past, say, year or so?
0: good question and a hard one, Patrick. I have the feeling if we hark back to the uh, my discussion of M2 data a few minutes ago, uh, the fall in the growth rate of M2 is large. The, the deceleration is large, almost unprecedented. The explosion, the rise was unprecedented. And so we just fell off a cliff. That suggests to me that we will see inflation as measured, let us say, by the CPI. We will see inflation fall rather quickly. And then that would suggest that the bigger part of the misery index that will come down will be the inflation part of it, which then might preserve the the strength and muscle that is currently being exhibited in labor markets but I, I, I really liked your, your idea of calling it a tax because inflation is clearly an alternative for government to taxing. A politician can run for office and say, I'll never raise your taxes and be honest to her or his word, but may also engage in activities that generates inflation through money. And that enables the government to expand it's, it's purchasing and activities without a tax increase. And it does touch everybody, which makes it a regressive tax. That is, it's heavier as a proportion of income on low-income people than it is on high-income people. Uh, the, the amount of your income spent on consumption will be much higher as incomes go down the spectrum as compared to going up the spectrum. So it is a cruel tax. But to your question, I think the sharper end of the misery index is the inflation rate. And there's a good chance, I think, that it will get blunted so that we do not have to have such a severe slowdown with large layoffs.
1: You sound fairly optimistic given the circumstances, and and I think in your report you, you you predict a, a recessionary period, but nothing super deep, maybe a shallow recession. And I think earlier in this in this very podcast you said for about a year until we come out of it, but you also warn the reader. To keep their seatbelt fastened so we 're coming up with the end of the podcast. So Bruce, you could have some closing remarks by discussing what you mean by keeping your seatbelt fastened and what are the wild cars to be watching out for
0: you and I 've known each other a long time, Patrick, and so you 've known me long enough to know that I am uh, I am an optimistic person sort of by definition. My mother loved me a lot when I was little and so i 'll uh, lay the blame on her I tend to put an optimistic spin on what I see around me on life itself. I think we're better off as people if we think positively than if we think negatively. But that said to your point, my big concerns right now do not have anything to do with domestic policy other than how our domestic policy is interacting with the world in the current Russia, Ukraine energy debacle that is being faced. And so I think the big wild card for us to be most concerned about is energy and the price of energy, the reversal of regulations that we have been that we in a sense could afford to shut down coal-fired generators, for example, to back away from the burning of petroleum products, and now to perhaps re-embrace nuclear. But that doesn't get you energy overnight. But we do face the possibilities of an emergency energy high price situation that could impact us just as it will everybody in the world. So that's my major concern right now. Uh, There are plenty of others we might talk about, but that's the one I'm watching rather
1: closely. And boy, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had the flexibility to get other types of energy up and running quickly. But as you mentioned, Bruce, there are many obstacles. And it's not just the construction of nuclear plants. There are many policy obstacles, such as regulations, uh, that, that might stand in the way. We'll have to save that discussion for another time. We have uh, run out of time for this this particular podcast. Uh, Thank you, Bruce, for for joining us. It's been very enlightening to me. Great being with you, Patrick.
0: The Mercatus Policy Download is produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Explore our research on pressing policy problems at mercatus.org. Or for even more, follow us on Twitter at Mercatus.